Hola, listeners. Welcome to the Chicana Latina Flourishing Project podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Azucena Verdin. This four-part podcast series was created to provide a safe space to platicar, or converse, about what it's like to be a Latina in academic spaces. My co-hosts, the wonderful Maria Torres and equally wonderful Priscila Dominguez and I, get real about what being brown means for us in institutions that were not created by or for us, but where we know we must survive and thrive, not just for ourselves, but for other mujeres, our familias, and our comunidad, for other women, our families, and our community. We hope you enjoy these first four episodes. Hasta luego! Welcome, listeners, to the Chicana Latina Flourishing Project podcast. I'm Azucena Verdin, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Priscila Dominguez, Maria Torres, and we are here for episodes three and four of this podcast series. We're going to start today by having a plática, a conversation about the Chicana feminist concept of choque. This concept of choque, which is the Spanish word for collision, was used by Gloria Ansaldúa. You may remember her. We talked about her status as a Chicana feminist icon last time. She talked about choque as a cultural collision that happens when we are navigating and negotiating these in-between spaces, or what we called nepantla last time. And I kind of want to start, if it's okay with you all and not too academic and nerdy, by reading a little bit from Gloria Ansaldúa's book, It's called Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza. I have the fourth edition. I believe the first edition came out in 1987, and there have been many editions since then. And what's interesting about this work is that Gloria Ansaldúa doesn't go in really large detail about choque, but it appears here in a way that I think resonates with another concept that she talked about later, when she talked about conocimiento or knowledge and the the paths toward what she called a mestiza consciousness or a borderlands consciousness or conocimiento. So we'll we'll talk about that later, but I'm going to read from her book. This is page 100 of Borderlands La Frontera. And she says, the ambivalence from the clash of voices, the voices that we hear when we're struggling to figure out, am I Mexican enough? Am I Latina enough? Am I white enough? I'm not anything enough. The clash of voice, the ambivalence from the clash of voices results in mental and emotional states of perplexity. Internal strife results in insecurity and indecisiveness. The mestizas, dual or multiple personality, is plagued by psychic restlessness. In a constant state of mental nepantalism, that nepantla, a Nastic word meaning torn between ways, la mestiza is a product of the transfer of the cultural and spiritual values of one group to another. Being tricultural, monolingual, bilingual, or multilingual, speaking a patois, and in a state of perpetual transition, the mestiza faces the dilemma of the mixed breed. Which collectivity does the daughter of a dark-skinned mother listen to? El choque de un alma atrapado entre el mundo del espíritu y el mundo de la técnica a veces la deja entullada. Cradled in one culture, sandwiched between two cultures, straddling all three cultures and their value system, la mestiza undergoes a struggle of flesh, 
a struggle of borders, an inner war. Like all people, we perceive the version of reality that our culture communicates. Like others having or living in more than one culture, we get multiple, often opposing messages. The coming together of two self-consistent but habitually incompatible frames of reference causes un choque, a cultural collision. So I know that was a long passage, but I wanted to give the good stuff leading up to where she talks about this cultural collision, this choque, because I think it's such a, in my mind anyway, I think it's such a strong image for that feeling of dissonance that we get when we, when we can feel in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirit, that there's a tension, that something's not adding up or not making sense. But because we have grown up to abide by the norms of the dominant culture, it's really hard to name it and it's really hard to put your finger on it. And like we said last time, if you can't name it, if you can't identify it, then whatever it is that's causing this collision, this choque, starts to have more power over you. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there and and get your thoughts on it. What are your responses to that passage? I thought it was really good. Sorry, I'm still forming kind of my thoughts on it. But it was a really good passage, very beautifully said by Lorian Saldua. I think this is like a really strong thinking point. So I'm still kind of putting all my thoughts together. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. That was uh, mm-hmm. a lot to digest. I think what, I don't know if you could read this section again, because I don't want to butcher it. But You want me to read it now? Oh, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. She said, being tricultural, monolingual, bilingual, or multilingual, Speaking a patois and in a state of perpetual transition, the mestiza faces the dilemma of the mixed breed. Which collectivity does the daughter of a dark-skinned mother listen to? So when you're in between, which way do you lean? That's the struggle. Yeah, definitely. I think I really Mm -hmm. connected with that and just where um, I find myself sometimes in in the past and in in the present, I think... um, and she puts it in words where, like, she really gets it, I think. And we might not be able to find that elsewhere. But learning about it through her, I think, like, just has been helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I also find that calling that feeling choke sometimes is helpful because it, it sort of makes it okay to acknowledge that sometimes that feeling can evoke a sense of violence. like. Even if on the outside everything looks calm, like inside you can feel that you're being sort of violently thrust between two value systems or two belief systems, two sets of, or, or more, right? Not just two, it could be three, four um, sets of like cultural values. And it's not easy or clear always what to do because mm-hmm. sometimes I think especially for those of us who, you know, identify as Latina, and those of us in the university or doing graduate school, like obviously we've we've made it to a point, right? You can't see me, listeners, but I'm doing air quotes. You've made it. <laughs> you know, you've done all the right things in school and you've gotten the good grades and here you are getting more good grades. And so you, we have figured out how to lean into our academic side, which means we need to speak a certain way and look a certain way mm-hmm. and and show our knowledge a certain way. Which also then means that we have chosen to, whether we know it or not, close the book on other ways of being, looking, dressing, speaking, showing knowledge. 
And that I think it can be transformative, but it can also be, it, it can facilitate a sense of harm internally. Because if we're rejecting parts of ourself without really exploring why we're rejecting it, um, without challenging if that's tied to colonialism or just, you know, white supremacist values that exist around us, then yeah, we could, we could lose a part of ourselves that really gives us a lot of strength. Yeah, and then kind of piggybacking off of both of Maria and Dr. Verdin said, the part that stood out to me on the book was, um, you're cradled by your mother. And then you're kind of sandwiched in between something along those lines. Um, that part stood out to me and it kind of fits to what both of y'all were saying where you are raised and you're born a certain way. You're surrounded by your Hispanic or Latina family. But then once you kind of go off into the real world, you're kind of sandwiched between the values, the way you were raised by your parents and now what you have to become to be successful in the professional world. And that's where changing the way you talk, um, the way you dress, what you do, what you say comes into play. And that's where you start getting the choque, I feel. At least that was my experience. Growing up in the Valley, it's predominantly brown people, Spanish speaking. Everywhere you go, you don't even speak English because everyone there is all Spanish. So then when you, when I moved to Lubbock, it was like predominantly white, primarily Caucasian. So the way that was like a big choque to me. And there was parts of me that I had. I didn't have to change, but I felt like I had to change in order for me to be successful there. And I kind of felt like it was like a loss of identity, the way you were saying, Dr. Verdin. But then I learned that the best part of me is where I came from, my culture. That's where my, I think that my strength and my power was from. And I guess like my advocacy also for, for minority people um, and just wanting to change that and break that barrier. I feel like I had to go through that choke to get to where I am now. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, definitely. I think when you talked about that, like it, like I feel like I, I, I don't know. I'm like it started something for mm-hmm. me again, and like it put it for me in in a way that I can connect to. I guess. And you talked about like when you go from the world that you grew up in into this other world where you're there to learn, but you're seeing that maybe this is it's a different culture. I guess mm-hmm. too. And then I guess experiencing what that I experienced that with Choke, where it's like this internal fight, I can just visualize that, I guess. Did you, I think you said violent, right? Almost. Mm, yeah. Hearing your experience, I guess it just, I think about my own experience with like growing up in a predominantly white small town. Like, I think it happened to me like that Choke in childhood and just my home life was, you know, a different experience where where I could be. And then I had to go to school and it was just a different world, a mm-hmm. different, um, where I wanted to change to be accepted, where I experienced that choke because I was in between those two worlds, I guess you could say. So yeah, I just, what that's like to, to find yourself in, in between. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to reflect more on like what that choke is. What is that violent experience, I guess, inside during childhood? And then if that's something that I still experience now, like it, I'm just thinking about that and reflecting mm-hmm. on it right now. It's a great question. What is that choke, right? I think I've read and heard it and described, maybe not choke, but certainly the tension that we feel in Nepantla and the in-between as related or connected to the dysregulation of our of our nervous system, the fight or flight or freeze state that we talk mm-hmm. about so much in our <laughs> classes and, you know, when we're learning about trauma and things like that. And that's not to say that choke 
only has like a physical neurological outcome, as I don't believe that that's true. And I don't believe that's how Ansaldua meant it. She certainly was not, you know, neurologist or psychologist or anything like that. But in the way that people have spoken of Nepantla and the tension and the choque recently is that it exists mentally, psychically, spiritually, but also very much in our bodies somatically. Right. And and I think that if you think to any time where you were really angry because someone didn't get you or, or there, maybe someone committed a microaggression against you mm. or your family or just your community at large and that anger mm-hmm. and frustration and, and rabia that you might have, that's a, a, a dysregulated nervous mm-hmm. system. But that's not necessarily always a bad thing, right? Because sometimes we have to get into that fight mm-hmm. or flight state in order to make change. And so choque can be a form of trauma, be violent in that way. But I think in the in the Ansalduan way of thinking, it's also necessary to experience in order to shift out of like our normal way of of being and doing, kind of like waking up and seeing, hey, this is a vestige, this is a leftover of colonialism mm-hmm. that still exists. How can I use my my in-between identity to overcome that as a strength to heal not just myself, but my family and my community and my and my peers? So I guess what I'm saying is that two things. One is I think that the choque, the dissonance is more than just psychological. I think it's definitely spiritual. It's uh, embodied uh, in ways we can see and in ways we can't see, right? Like scars on our body, wrinkles on our face, but also inside stuff we can't see. And also very much, it can be a point of departure for transformation and for change. And so I think later on when we talk about what that change might look like, the conocimiento, that might also help illustrate that point. But I don't want to jump ahead and talk about Mm -hmm. conocimiento just yet. (laughs) (laughs) So could choque kind of be that switch that we experience? Whether it's like you're, when you're at home, you switch to like your regular Latina, Hispanic self. And then versus when you go into the professional world, you switch on like your, here I am, like I'm ready to learn. I have like this professionalism. I've always been professional. Could it be like that? Or am I understanding it incorrectly? I wouldn't say that you're understanding it incorrectly. And I just want to say that I am not by any means an Ansaldua expert. Um, <laughs> although we do have someone at Texas Women's University who is an Ansaldua expert, by the way. Yes, Dr. Anna Louise Keating in the Women and Gender Studies. Mm-hmm. So shout out to her in that department at TWU. <laughs> but I think, back to your question, Priscilla, I think that in that example where you have to code switch mm-hmm. from however you speak and act when you're comfortable in your Latinaness or your, you know, in your case, my case, Maria's case, our Mexicanness, whatever the situation might be, to that professional academic setting where now you speak a certain way mm-hmm. and you have to look a certain way. I think the choque is what you feel when it doesn't feel quite right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this hurts. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm losing a part of myself. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm selling out or whatever it is that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. So that maybe not the switch exactly, uh, but what what you had to endure before you realized you had to switch, right? Okay. Or even if you don't realize it, mm-hmm. right? Because maybe it's not totally conscious. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're just like you're in a new setting now, and you look around, and no one looks like you, and no one speaks like you, and maybe you just sort of 
transit, you code switch without mm-hmm. knowing about it. But, but yeah, something happened internally mm-hmm. that, that was the dissonance. Like things didn't line up. I, I don't know. What do you think about that, Maria? As being the choque. I mean, yeah, I think that I'm trying to think of like my own experiences where, where I have that and definitely in college, I think in grad school, like learning about different like theories and not exactly finding one, a theory that I can use in my own as a counselor, I guess, in therapy and, and just like hearing that they were mostly all like from white men, like Mm -hmm. older men that, you know, all these theories are, are created by them and, and wanting to know like, will this help me or people like me? And, and I guess kind of experiencing that frustration and then wanting to somehow connect my world as a, a Chicana and then also connecting that world with what I'm studying. And I think I was able to experience that also like in my own therapy experience. I think while in grad school, I just remember um, doing a, a sand play activity in therapy. And one of the objects that I picked up was like a Aztec pyramid. And at the moment, like I didn't know what that meant. And we just kind of talked about um, process process in that moment, like uh what that was like and and like my therapist kind of just gave me that space to just like it's okay if you don't know right now and then later in my platicas with um Azucena while we were working on research I I remember just being able to finally put those two things together and like finding that connection that I was wanting I was looking for that connection in my in my experience in grad school and just wanting to somehow connect my roots with what I was learning, what I'm going to be doing, how I'm going to be helping people. And I was like, not finding that. But I think in through my therapy session, my own personal therapy session, I was expressing that in a way that I wanted to connect with mm-hmm. my roots, but I was far from that, I guess. And, and I felt that like, I want to, but how, or is this possible? Or, and I guess that's maybe that choke there. Like when you start to maybe question that and like, I want that, but this is like the world that I'm in right now. Yeah, I remember that conversation that we had. It was such a powerful moment, at least from my perspective, it was powerful to hear you sort of talk through that experience when it first happened and then reliving it, revisiting it when you and I were platicando. And I think that the term we gave it at the time was, it was like an ancestral longing Mm -hmm. that you felt which I thought was just so beautiful because we all have longings and desires. That's part of Chicana feminism too, that our theories should be in the flesh, not just in the head mm-hmm. or in the mind. <laughs> Those longings are not just in the present time or in the future. Thinking about the future, always busy, always being productive, mm-hmm. right? using that language of productivity and we must earn what we, mm-hmm. you know, what we do and get paid for what we do. But also looking back and really thinking about and feeling gratitude toward all of our madres and abuelas and abuelos and padres and tios and tias, right? Our mothers and fathers and grandparents who came before us. There are those who we know, at least in memory, and then those who we don't know because that information has been lost forever, Mm -hmm. especially those of us, which not all Latinas do, but those of us who do have indigenous ancestry, that especially has on purpose, the record keeping in Mexico and other parts of Latin America intentionally erased the documentation on indigenous ancestry, right? Because they were trying to, what's that phrase they use, at least in the United States, 
kill the Indian, but keep the man or something like that, mm-hmm. right? So they were trying to erase all mm-hmm. indigenous language and belief and ways of knowing and being. So yeah, that was a really, that was a really beautiful moment. I wanted to share an experience with Choke. I had quite young, well, I was probably like maybe 12 or 13. So not super young, but a long time ago now. I was in Laredo, a border community, like we've talked about before, like just similar to the valley, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone was brown and Almost everyone in that community anyway is Mexican, Mexican-American. Everywhere you go, people speak Spanish. But because my parents, like so many other parents there or adults there, were immigrants, my dad, uh, I think, maybe went to seventh grade and was an alcoholic. I'm not sure if I shared that before. But I mean, he's he's alive now and hasn't he hasn't had a drink in probably two decades. But, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And so when I was growing up, That was a big part of how he dealt with his trauma was by drinking. So he was always losing jobs. He'd get a job and he'd lose it because he would go on a drinking binge, et cetera. And I remember that he was, I think he might've, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I think that he might've been collecting unemployment compensation. And in order to get unemployment, you have to show that you're looking for work. And so you have like, a log that you fill out and you say where you're applying and what the status is and if you've gotten an interview or a call or whatever. And he had applied somewhere like, let's say 7-Eleven, right, to be the person at the counter at a 7-Eleven convenience store. And he was filling out his form because it was time to fill it out. And back then it was all paper form. You didn't do it online. And he wrote something like, I applied to this job. And I don't know why it is that I happened to look at that paper but he had spelled job, J-A-B, like jab. And, mm-hmm. you know, for a Spanish speaker like him, that makes sense, right? Because the A in Spanish is ha, right? It makes that sound. So he was reading it phonetically. Mm-hmm. I applied for this job. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in my home. No one was around me looking at me or judging me. But mm-hmm. I felt so ashamed, so ashamed that my father couldn't spell the word job in English. And mm-hmm. oh my goodness, what did this mean about him? What does this mean about us? And we'll never amount to anything. And this is why we're poor. And just all of this like really internalized shame and anger and despair and blame, which now I know as an adult was me falling into that colonial way of self-hate, right? Like mm-hmm. hate against my own people and my own community and immigrants and And of course, of course, he was going to spell it that way. He, you know, had a seventh grade education in Mexico and now was in the U.S. And we were uninsured. So there was no way he was getting any kind of evidence-based support for his alcoholism. And my mom was doing her best to keep us afloat. But I know for a fact that she was struggling with her own anxiety. And though we had a, a great extended family, no one talked about it back then. And I think to a degree, it's still hard to talk about in our families now (laughs) and uh, it took me a long time to really admit that that shame was was inside me my Mm -hmm. dad didn't do anything shameful he did nothing that I had to be ashamed of but it really in that moment it shook me it shook me so badly because I wanted me right I wanted to present this like to the world like look at me I'm successful I'm Mm -hmm. gonna I get good grades. I'm going to graduate high school and go to college and not be like my parents. And and this was a reminder that, in fact, within my family, my own father, my flesh and, and blood, 
was very much immigrant who did not have the privilege of finishing school for fine, like so many immigrants, right? For financial reasons, had to leave all he knew and come here to quote unquote, make a better life for us. And that's just part of it. But I just saw it as something super shameful. So that's a moment that has really stuck with me. And I guess for me, that would be an example of choking. When you said like, and there wasn't anyone else in the room, it was just this shame that you experienced. No one was in there judging you, but to connect that to like those voices that we've been, that we've heard, that we've seen, that we've felt, that we've experienced from the dominant culture and what, what's supposed to be the way things are supposed to be, I guess. And yeah, that definitely, I can feel that. Like I can, <laughs> I can connect to that. I can I keep saying connect, but I, I really can like just understand Choki a little bit more too mm-hmm. with your experience. That was very powerful, um, Dr. Burden. And I appreciate you feeling comfortable enough to share that with us. I don't know. It, it just made me think about well, kind of, kind of what Maria said, like hearing those voices and then just seeing maybe like other people's experiences, like their parents have like education and like their parents know. It kind of made me think about, um, so my mom, when, when we lived in the valley, she was a housekeeper. Um, she worked in houses and we were talking about careers and people were sharing what their parents did. And what they was like, oh, my mom's a teacher, my dad's a doctor. Um, my mom is this, my mom is that. They're like, oh, Priscilla, what about you? And I just stayed quiet. And I was like, oh, well, um, well, my mom, like, she, she's, a, she's a housekeeper. And the student just kind of looked at me and like, mom cleans houses? And I was like, yeah, like, she cleans houses. And it's kind of the same, just like this sense of shame felt like, oh, my God, like, my mom cleans houses. Like, she's your stereotypical Hispanic mom. And to kind of just, what, what felt to me was a little more salt on the wound was that she was cleaning houses for a white woman. Hmm. What, what I piece together right now with what Maria said and Dr. Rodin said, it was those voices. And I felt like I was, like my family was falling into the stereotype of what an immigrant comes to the United States for. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm a stereotype. My mom's a stereotype. I'm a stereotype. Why? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So every time people would ask me moving forward, like, what does your mom do? I'll kind of just avoid the question. Cause I was like, oh, I don't want to tell people I was, my mom's a housekeeper. But as I grow older, I realized, yeah, she's a housekeeper. Like, and who cares? She still, despite she left her country to give us a better life, and she did. Because of her is where I am now. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. But at that at that time, it took me a long time to kind of realize that. But yeah, I guess I can kind of relate to what you were saying. Um, I don't think I've ever told my mom that because I feel like it would break her heart. So mom, if you're hearing this, like um, I, I, I've grown. So I appreciate what she she did and that experience. But yeah, that, that sense of shame. I was like, oh my God. There there are those connections again that mm-hmm. Maria was talking about, right? You took that choque, that violent sort of, okay, mm-hmm. what is happening right mm-hmm. now? They're asking me and I don't want to say it mm-hmm. or I just said it and they yeah. are making me feel horrible because mm-hmm. of it. You took that. And even though it took you a while, you shifted your thinking, you negotiated what that meant for your identity, and you arrived at this place of growth, this mm-hmm. place of healing. That's re- a really lovely like process mm-hmm. to imagine. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was tough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. I have another choking example. This one was when I was in college, and I think it was the summer between maybe my junior and my senior year. And I was 
roommates with and good friends with a woman who she's Filipino. Both her parents are Filipino as well. And I don't know if you've ever heard. Who is it? Are you familiar with the comedian Fluffy Iglesias? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Some people hate his stuff. I, I like his stuff. I, like I his think stuff. it's funny. He, he made a 15 for his dog. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> how funny. Yeah, that his way. dog turned 15 and he threw her a quinceañera. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet it was a really expensive quinceañera <laughs> for the dog, yes. too. I mean, he's so rich. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he, I think he's the one who jokes and he says that, like, Within the brown communities, right? Like Filipino people are like the Mexicans of Asians uh, in that, right? They they don't sort of get, and this is, again, this is speaking very generally, but in that joke, in that stereotype, he's tapping, tapping into the fact that many people don't really know what Filipinos are, right? They see, they see brown, they see Asian, they're like, wait, what are you? And I feel a lot of that sometimes with those of us who are Mexican origin, who maybe have more in- indigenous, visible indigeneity, people are like, what are you? And that's probably true as well mm-hmm. for Latinas and Latinos of other ethnicities. But um, anyway, so my friend was Filipino, but she, her family was rich. I mean, mm-hmm. so wealthy. They, both her mom and dad were anesthesiologists, which uh, my son has looked up what jobs pay the most. Anesthesiologists <laughs> 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 are right up there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And they lived in this beautiful home that I'm pretty sure had like an indoor uh, tennis court within the main house itself. Like not outside, like indoor. In Buckhead, Atlanta, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if you all have ever been to Atlanta, but it's Mm -hmm. like one of the richest neighborhoods. I mean, just gorgeous. And I had been to her house before. And anyway, she's she's super nice. She was super nice. I, I don't keep in touch with her. I'm sure she's still super nice. So I don't want to take anything away from her character just because she came from a very different economic background than I did. But that summer, she had had big plans about us doing a road trip. And so the idea was that I would fly from Laredo, which is where I was part of the summer, to Atlanta. And then we were going to road trip back up to the East Coast to start our final year. And I was working part-time at a bank, not because I wanted to be a banker, but because that was sort of like the best job I could find without having any connections that paid decent for someone without a college degree. And my dad was not working because he was drinking. And my mom had some other expenses having to do with extended family who were ill that I wasn't aware of at the time. Long story short, we lost our phone, like our landline phone, because we didn't have cell phones back then, because she just couldn't afford to pay the phone bill. And she didn't tell me about it. And I was the only one home at that time because all my older siblings were off in college. I was so ashamed again, like, what? How could we? But like, all of us are in college. I thought we were past the point where we're so economically volatile that the phone gets cut off. What what world is this? Like, I couldn't believe it. Because I, again, my identity, I was leaning into my collegiate identity. And when you're in college, you just don't experience that. And meanwhile, here was stuff that my mom was dealing with. And uh, so I was so ashamed and I couldn't believe this was happening. And it took us a while, a couple of weeks to get our phone uh, reconnected. And by then I was past the point where my roommate needed to know when I was showing up. So I just didn't show up. And because of my shame, I didn't call her to explain two weeks later what was happening. She couldn't get in touch with me. So it really put a a dent in our relationship with my roommate because she couldn't trust me from her perspective. I had let her down without any good reason, Mm -hmm. without any reason. And I kind of, I think in addition to just wallowing in my shame, 
I did not feel comfortable either where I was in that Nepantla and that in between to trust her enough to be vulnerable and let her know what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, because I saw her as this really wealthy person who had it all. And I didn't want her to think less of me because I was the roommate whose parents had their phone cut off because they couldn't pay for it. And it took me a really long time to come to terms with that. And I, I never told her what happened. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I had the opportunity to tell her. I'm sure she would have been compassionate about it. But yeah, it's like these like little secrets or papelitos guardados. That's another term that comes from the, the Chicana feminism, like these little scripts that we have um, that we tell ourselves, maybe the voices, right? Like the yeah. voices in our head that in my case stopped me from growth. In your case, Priscilla, from your example, your voices actually facilitated growth. So I think mm-hmm. from the choque, it, mm-hmm. it could go either way, right? Mm-hmm. We could make, we could stay in a, pa- a place of hurt and rupture, or we can heal and, and repair and mm-hmm. grow. Dr. Rodin, do you think it would have been, like if you would have told her, do you think it would have, she would have understood? Or because I know sometimes when when you grow up in a like in a low income household, for me it was very like if you share your low income and you have someone who has like the finances, they're like, oh, I'll just help you. Do you feel like that's kind of also what stopped you and added maybe to the shame? Maybe she was very generous, mm-hmm. very generous, and which is why I think that she would not have reacted poorly. And I think she would have done anything she could to help. She probably would have gotten her parents involved and. I think that was just so intolerable for me, you know, thinking about now that I know that this is a thing, right? That when thinking about a possible scenario instills such fear or anxiety in you because of all the shame and the voices and the things we tell ourselves and the messages we hear that it's like, I don't even want to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with that. I'll just pretend it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I just pretended it didn't happen. And then our friendship wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. ever again after that that's a different example of choke thank you for sharing that and i after you shared too like it got me thinking about <laughs> stuff i think just hearing in this space to be able to to hear our stories and like mm-hmm. think back to these experiences where i think this moment is even healing for me i think i'm still growing and that there are those things that still hurt sometimes and that really i think like i didn't start like healing from those experiences that were from Choque that I grew up with, I guess, and until I started learning about platicas, until I started learning about a Chicana Latina feminism, and to be able to to think about those things, and, and then, but then, yes, be able to connect them to healing, or or to also know that it's okay to still be in that, because I think that that's still there are things that experiences where I'm still in that. I think, and I was thinking, and as y'all were sharing about like. I remember also having a friend who was white and she was like my best friend from like, I think middle school until mm -hmm, towards the end of high school. But I just remember two experiences that were really hurtful, I think, where I was in a Spanish class and I don't know how we got on the topic, but this boy had asked about my parents, like what they were. I don't remember, I'm trying to think like how exactly he phrased it, but, and I, you know, try to answer proudly like oh they're permanent resident that was okay that's they're legal like trying to present something so that they wouldn't attack me or think less of me and I thought you know by saying that 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 was enough and I just remember my friend saying oh he said so what does that mean like what what does that 
like try to understand, I guess, in a way, but in a way, maybe not, like just trying to be mean, I think. And like my friend was like, oh, they're, I think she said like, there's the, they're the same as citizens. It's that they don't, they don't pay taxes. And so in that moment, like I could, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah. I think in that moment I was just like, I knew that wasn't true, but I couldn't defend myself. Like I just was like felt small and felt, but I had that inside of me like, no, that's not true. Like I, I want to speak and like defend myself. And I remember going home and having a conversation with my dad and he was like also kind of upset and that I should have defended myself, I guess, in that way. But at the same time, like I think within that same year or that same friend's dad like was giving me a ride to I think one of her birthday parties or something and questioned me about the same thing and like asking me like, well, when are they going to become citizens? Like what's taking them so long? And like, I'm over there, this child, like, you know, supposed to be answering those questions. And I was like having, again, I felt so little, but at the same time I was like mad. Like, why am I having to like different questions about my identity, who I am? Like, why, why do I feeling bad about myself and feeling bad about who I am? And now as an adult like I just I see it another way one I was a child too like feeling so small and feeling so less than I guess in that moment but because of these voices because of those people that want to like oppress us right Mm -hmm. that think that they're better in a way because of their whiteness I guess Mm -hmm. yeah wow that's so powerful and there's so much to unpack there just the the nerve the audacity to basically question your humanity mm-hmm. that's what i took from it mm-hmm. and then on top of it all to question the humanity of a child and to put that burden on you and while you were describing all of those contradictory things you were feeling the choke mm-hmm. right the choke in all its ways it's like that's what those kinds of questions do they make us they put us in a state of fight or flight or freeze. And often when we're children, we freeze because mm-hmm. we don't know. Mm-hmm. And then when we come out of that state of dysregulation and we try to think through it, those questions make us blame our parents and blame our past. And I don't know if, if you ever thought about this, but for me, when I would be in those positions, I'd be, oh, this would just be so much easier if I were white or this would just be so much easier if I were like a, a rich Latina whose parents spoke English perfectly and had college degrees. And, and not that that is true. That's mm-hmm. just what I felt mm-hmm. at the time. And there's plenty of people who who do fit those identities and they don't have it easy by any means. So I'm not trying to minimize that. But, you know, then the flip side to that is like we, the collective we, have just accepted that the immigrants, the, you know, Latina, Latino em- immigrants will be oppressed when it wasn't really that long ago that (laughs) Texas was Mexico (laughs) and before that it was Spain and before that it was indigenous. (laughs) And the reason Texas became Texas and then the United States was because a little bit, little history lesson, because the Mexican government wanted to populate Texas. And so they let what they called at the time Anglo settlers live on land without paying taxes there's mm. the tax free <laughs> under the condition that they learn Spanish, right? Oh, there we go again. Learn English. <laughs> and the settlers didn't like that because of white supremacist beliefs that were already very 
widespread, but also because the Mexican government didn't allow slavery. They had done away with slavery mm -hmm. by the time this was Mexico. And this is not like Azucena speaking. This is all historical documentation mm -hmm. that anyone can read by looking, by reading books, peer-reviewed books or looking in the archives. And so when the settlers wanted to have enslaved people, they joined forces with the U.S. government and they were able to get support from the army and the military and, well, then the rest is history. And then and here you know, we are now. And here we are now, <laughs> right, with the, with the Rio Bravo and the Rio Grande being the border and it wasn't before. And suddenly generations of, of Mexicanos who lived here, Mexicanos, Tejanos who lived here, suddenly like were illegal. <laughs> so this idea of who's illegal is a made up idea. Mm -hmm. And I'll get off my soapbox, but all of all of that to say that, you know, when 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 people make those comments and it's not just I don't want anyone to think that I'm like dogging white people because it's not just white people. There's plenty of Latinos, you mm -hmm. know, of all shades and ethnicities who think that way and feel that way and make us feel small that way mm -hmm. as well. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, I've had that question, too. And it just makes my blood boil. Yeah. So as you were talking, I was dealing with very strong emotions like how could you like, why 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 would you even ask that like especially to a child like how you are saying like a vulnerable child who's just trying who's just there you know like you have no reason to to question anyone's status residency and say why is it taking so long like it's just i don't know makes yeah. my blood boil i i get very upset and it kind of brought me that the same feelings that i'm feeling now i felt with a professor at texas tech I don't remember how we got into the conversation, but we had a conversation. I was doing, I remember I was doing a genogram with my family. Um, and we know our families are for the most part pretty big. So my genogram was like huge. So I was on the floor, just like trying to piece everything together. And he stops by, we have a conversation. And then I don't know how we ended up talking about um, residency status. I think he probably asked me, my parents residency status. I think I try to avoid the question, and then he he's like, "Well, did you know that actually the residency the residency status application is not that complicated?" And I I just look at him and I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Yeah, like I don't know why a lot of like Mexicans or just people who want to enter the country like don't just do it. Like I've I've seen it and it's not that complicated. It's just a couple of pages, you submit it, and then it gets approved." And I just look at him, and I'm like, "Obviously, you haven't been on the other side." As like as someone who has an experience having to do that, it's a lot more complicated. But thank you for sharing that with me. I was like, I also don't think you understand that sometimes families have to pay thousands of dollars when they're not earning a lot. And maybe for you, a couple thousand isn't isn't that bad. And he's like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not trying to like argue with you. I'm just saying like, maybe they just don't know it's that easy. And I'm like, oh, we know it. We know the application process i was like but thank you for for sharing that and he was like okay okay, okay. i mean I, i didn't mean to make you upset i'm like oh no it's fine like i'm not i'm not upset when i was upset but obviously i can't say that to a professor so i just i continued doing my own thing and then he just walked away and i feel like that was also a, a moment of talking for me but mostly what i felt was the idea of people's privilege and not knowing and assuming was is what made me angry like in the fight flight or freeze i wanted to fight because mm -hmm. i just had all this all this anger of because of your of your privilege you aren't taking a second to think about the the, the struggling population or like my my people my population like you just don't know because you've never experienced it 
So how dare you say like it's not that complicated when you when you don't know? You're my <laughs> hero, Priscilla. I can't believe that as an undergraduate, <laughs> you had the courage to stand your ground. I think mm-hmm. I would have just shriveled as an undergraduate. It just makes me so. It made me so upset. I think. I think what kind of added to it was. I think I was in my junior year, if I remember correctly, and when I was in my undergrad. Unfortunately, my dad got deported. Mm. Um, so that was something that that I had to deal with during my undergrad uh, undergraduate year, and it was and it was very hard. So my family has just gone through a lot at that time. So hearing my my white professor say those things, I was like, you just. You just don't. You just. You just don't know. Mm-mm. And no it, I think that's also what kind of like made me like build up and have the courage to kind of just not fight back, but be like, yeah. I think yeah. yeah. Educate him, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Educate. Try yeah. to educate him, or maybe give him like a different way of thinking. I don't think it worked. No, I mean <laughs> that <Wow>. was powerful. <laughs> I, didn't, I agree with Asana. Like, <laughs> I also admire your like ability to do that and to. To stand up to him because that was not right at all. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That was, and I think maybe he just, I don't know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe he didn't realize what he was saying or like how hurtful maybe his words were. But I just, I hope he did have like some reflection in it and be like, okay, yeah, maybe I was wrong. I don't know. I can't speak for him. But it makes me, it makes me feel better if I think that he kind of reflected on what he said. Yeah, and I think it also goes to show that it doesn't matter how much formal education you have, you can mm-hmm. still be ignorant, mm-hmm. right? Like having a PhD or whatever he had, having those initials by his name doesn't mean that he has cultural mm-hmm. knowledge, yeah. cultural conocimiento or sensitivity or just common sense. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just so ignorant. <laughs> and I'm sorry that that happened by a professor, someone who's supposed to be educated and, mm-hmm. and but unfortunately that's that's still happening it's still mm-hmm. common and I think I mean I don't know this to be true but I would suspect that many of us would not have the wherewithal the confidence or the courage that you had and maybe would have just stayed silent I think that I would have as an undergraduate for sure for fear and also maybe I was thinking about this while you were speaking because again those of us who are who have been privileged enough to go to college and even those of us who go to grad school, part of that code switching is we learn to behave, right? Portese bien, you know, bien educada. Mm-hmm. And part of being well-educated and, and behaving pretty, behaving well, mm-hmm. is knowing when to be quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's hard to break out of. And, and I think in part, too, because when we're growing up and we do see our Latina, Latino, Latinx Peers who choose to fight, often they get in big trouble for it. Mm-hmm. They get suspended or expelled or put in jail. And so if we want to, quote unquote, make it, then we don't fight. Mm-hmm. Right? No, we don't say, hold my earrings, buddy, up. <laughs> I'm going to go in. <laughs> we say, okay, I'll be quiet. Mm-hmm. Bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. What's that saying? There is... Um, for our listeners who don't speak Spanish, mm-hmm. you look prettier when you're quiet. Yeah, horrible, mm-hmm. huh? Yeah, ves más bonita. <laughs> my mom says that still to this day. I'm like, oh, mom, no, stop. <laughs> but she says it about herself. Ay, es que calladita me veo más bonita. <laughs> <laughs>
more of those voices, right? There mm-hmm. they are again. Those yeah. voices. Yeah. Those voices are, are, are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have another story. I'm sorry. I'm, it's because you guys talk and it just brings up back all these stories where it's just, just like situations that we kind of like passed through or like have gone through. And that's why I like these platicas because you, it's like a safe, a safe place where we can just like talk and share with like no judgment and we kind of just each understand each other. And someone says something and then it makes me think about something that I've experienced and maybe my experience makes Dr. Berlin say something that she's experienced. But yeah, like I feel like another big moment, maybe like a choker that I experienced was orientation. I talk about this with my husband too. I mean, the real world guide valley, you have to cross a, a checkpoint to come to Texas Tech. So um, my parents couldn't travel with me, so I had to get on the Greyhound bus by myself and kind of just come over and just attend orientation. And no one told me what to expect for orientation. So uh, my thinking was, oh, it's just be me and like a bunch of other like freshmen, right? Like, oh, that's not too bad. Maybe I'll make some friends. But yes, it was a bunch of freshmen, but it was freshmen with their families. Mm-hmm. With parents, brothers and sisters, and there goes Priscilla with like all her stuff, and then she goes into like the the dorm she was staying in for orientation, and I'm all alone. Mm-hmm. Like I was all alone, and and I felt I don't think I felt shame. I felt mostly like a like fear and just like an immense like sadness that my parents couldn't be here, and like I know their situation, know why they couldn't be here. I think maybe also a little bit of shame of just how could they not be here with me at this big moment and anger mostly in like the sense of why is this opportunity not offered to my parents i guess like an anger towards like the government maybe <laughs> I, I don't i don't know um but yeah like i had to go through orientation like by myself and my mom would try her best like calling me she's like mika send me some pictures like mm-hmm. sorry that i couldn't be there with you and they had like these family events and trying to learn about like different scholarships and registration for classes on my own and I remember this one this one student who was in orientation. I think he kind of saw what I was going through. I think he might have been Latinx, Hispanic. I don't know how he identifies, but to me, he looked. Mm-hmm. He had a like, brown skin, so he was like one of our people. <laughs> so he comes up to me. He's like, hey, like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, like I'm looking for like resources about financial aid. He's like, yeah, are you alone? I was like, yeah, it's just me. Like my parents, my parents couldn't get off of work, so they just couldn't come. He's like, okay. He's like, yeah, well, here, let me go ahead and walk you over. So he walks me over to um, someone else about financial aid who was also um, brown. So I was like, oh, my God, yes. So that they kind of, like, helped me and, like, answered some questions. And then they're like, what do you want to call your mom so she can, like, um, hear also what we have to say? And I was like, oh, wish we need to speak Spanish. They're like, oh, that's fine. I'll tell you in English and you'll just translate to her. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we did that. And that kind of offered me, like, it gave me some, like, sense of, like, okay, I'm, like, I'm not alone. But then once that ended, I was back to being alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that I got shaken up during that time. And it made me, I guess, like, realize where I was at. I don't know if that's, like an, that's, that's a choke experience, but it kind of felt that way of, it shook me like, hey, you're not the same as all these other people. And you're going to have to go through some things alone. And that's okay. Because that's the story we're fed, right? Like if you graduate high school mm-hmm. and you get good grades and... You do all the things that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You get to college. That's the great equalizer. You will be like everyone else mm-hmm. because you will deserve to have, you'll deserve to be there and you'll get the same education and all your outcomes will be the same. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't take into account all of these moments yeah. of interaction, of feeling that you're psychologically homeless. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like you were not homeless, but in that physical and psychological, emotional place, no te ubicabas, you couldn't locate yourself. You mm-hmm. couldn't like ground yourself. And thank goodness for these wonderful, compassionate yeah. <laughs> you know, folks who came over and and essentially like recognized mm-hmm. maybe the yeah. choque. Yeah, yeah, probably. I didn't like think the, about it that the way. The sensitivity, mm-hmm. the cultural sensitivity or just personal sensitivity to notice it, mm-hmm. pick up on it and then do something about it. So like such a relational way of supporting people mm-hmm. instead of just, okay, follow me. I'm going to give you a tour, mm-hmm. which is also important. Yeah. <laughs> but But this was not something that you know, that kind of help is not listed on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to count on, on the good hearts of people and, mm-hmm. and, and that they have a a, a, a cariño about them. Yeah. They want to show you a caring side. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I hope you don't feel like you have to hold back because, you know, like you're not taking up too much space. That's what this is for. Yeah, so, that's, so. I, I don't want to, I want to give you all a chance to talk and say your amazing stories. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> No. I say that as I look at Maria. I know, right? <laughs> Again, this space is beautiful. And it's just like that we have that, that we're able to do this here and mm-hmm. and kind of like learn and and think about and reflect. And so I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm still healing. And when you talked about like, you know, gave us this little mini history lesson, it's things that I've never heard before. Like I've maybe briefly like, through my own, maybe reading articles online, like in pop culture or things like that, but never in elementary school, you don't learn that. <laughs> you know, well, not here in Texas, at least I don't know if, if anymore, but that was, that's healing. And, and I guess I accept that I, I'm still in, in cer- certain places of uh, choque. I still experience that. And as you talk about your experiences, like I think about that and where still feel that shame maybe or it, when that comes up for me I guess because like one that I can think of recently is like that I'm still like fighting in, internally is like those things that we grow up learning about like for example uh, my mom like Tapate porque te va a dar un aire. and oh, I don't know if you've heard that before mm, yes. too um, but like no salgas con el cabello mojado. Don't sí. go out with wet hair. Ponte calcetines, put on socks. Yes. Yes. No dejes la bolsa de mano en el piso. Don't leave your purse on the floor because you will have bad luck. Y no camines descalzo en la casa porque te va a dar algo. And so, or you'll get sick if, yeah. you, if you're walking barefoot. without, yeah, if you're barefoot in the house. Which I think is like antigeneity, anti-indigeneity that's mm-hmm. just been covered up over the centuries. But anyway. No, I love that. I, I remember <laughs> learning that from you too. But where I was going with that is that like, I think most recently I just experienced, I went to nursing school for a brief second. <laughs> <laughs> a hot minute. <laughs> um, I thought we weren't going to talk about this, Maria. <laughs> Wasn't that the agreement? Wink, wink. Oh, man. <laughs> it came up again, but... Um, <laughs> I promise it's really, <laughs> but just um, learning a lot of things, I guess, in that, in that brief minute about uh, what is preventative, I guess, medicine, what is, I mean, I didn't study medicine, but how you can keep from getting a cold or whatever, you know, and, and I guess those things got erased, like those thoughts of like what your mom, what my mom told me, like what my, what I learned from her. 
we're raced through that process of learning. Like I remember like there was probably like some mention about like mal de ojo or something like that in the mm -hmm. mini multicultural section of the assessment class. I think it was learning something else and like pushing everything else that I learned about it in my culture and my household growing up. I guess that got erased and I focused on like, oh, germs and like you, this is how you get sick. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, there, there is research for that and, you know, learning about that research. And so I'm in this like, Currently, like, I guess in this place where, like, I hear my husband saying things like that and, like, I'm like, I don't know if I believe mm -hmm. it, like, mm -hmm. because it's been erased, because it's been, um, because I've allowed, I guess, to, to be erased by learning those new things, but pushing my other stuff out of the way and saying that's not true. That's, that's not. That's not knowledge. Yes. And so I get mad at myself, I guess. I get, like, I question myself, like, am I wrong? Am I Like I find myself in that in between, like I want to mm -hmm. believe this thing, but I also learned about this thing. And so I'm like in that Nepantla, I guess, and, and experiencing that choque too, in that still. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. This podcast is brought to you by the Chicana Latina Flourishing Project, recorded by Dr. Azucena Verdín. Maria Torres and Priscilla Dominguez, edited by Eliud Ramirez.